the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hi there. I hope you're all well. We have a guest today. Special guest alert. Special, Special guest. guest alert. Hello. Uh, <laughs> hi. We have Dr. Katie Muth. Uh, Tell us about yourself, Dr. Katie. Well, I, until uh, just very recently, have been teaching at Durham University. I teach American literature and work primarily in post-war and contemporary lit. Um, I'm working on a project about work and labor in contemporary uh, American literature, primarily post-1945 to about 1990s, early 90s. And that's me. And what are we talking about today, Hannah? What are we talking about today? Is this episode 60? This is episode 60. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> We've episode spent a 60. long time doing this. <laughs> so welcome to episode 60, episode 60, and end episode 61. Actually, we're doing a two-part um, series. Um, it came out of a talk that Katie did a couple of months ago and that Anindya was at. And just after she gave it, he sent me a message, like, I think within minutes. I think probably might even Maybe have been during the during, question and answer session. During the talk, <laughs> I get this message and it says, Katie's just given the most amazing talk. I really want to discuss it on the podcast. If she's willing, do you think we should have her on? And I was like, yes, obviously. Uh, Katie's a genius. And yeah. she's doing some really interesting work on self-help, self-help literature, self-help as an industry, self-help as a kind of set of discourses and practices, and specifically its relationship to uh, one of, I would say one of the most important science fiction writers in American literature. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And we thought that we'd really like to do an episode with you on self-help, science fiction, and capitalism, um, and some of the more dangerous uh, ideologies kind of circulating now, but also that have been circulating for the last 150 years in the U.S. So <laughs> well, just a long time period. <laughs> yes. um, and so today we're going to talk about some of your work on Octavia Butler, um, her literature, and her life, and her relationship to self-help. And we'll talk a bit about self-help as a practice, as a sort of spiritual practice, economic practice. And then next week we're going to talk about the wider industry in which, or the, the wider kind of business practices and and type of uh, corporations that self-help ideologies, self-help mm. strands, self-help Ooh, cults, a- self-help <laughs> cults. like what, you know, in a sense, uh, they, they sort of straddle a lot of boundaries. Um, so we'll talk about capitalism next week. And multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes yes mm-hmm. and um, a kind of entrepreneurial utopia mm-hmm. uh, utopianism that connects all of these various um, sectors the idea that 
you can put in labor in order to perfect yourself as uh, a more a more effective a more efficient economic agent and in the process you will become rich that rich that richness wealth is attainable for all of us within capitalism mm -hmm. and one just needs to find the right formula and the right formula can can involve um, self-help it can involve most level marketing it can involve a permit scheme but all of these sources of information give you give you the, the key to unlocking your potential your human potential mm -hmm. uh, which will then allow you to achieve your dreams yeah so do you want to Katie start by telling us what Octavia Butler's connection to this was yeah um, first thank you for having me um, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm I'm not sure I'm looking forward to hearing my voice recorded. It's been a lot of years since I've <laughs> listened to my own voice recorded, but I, I'm game. Um, but yeah, it was it was for me a really strange thing to uncover, actually. So um, I, I was in the archives at the Huntington Library uh, looking through Octavia Butler's materials, and I kept coming across these kind of references to, to self-help of various sorts. And I sort of knew that in a vague sense that she was invested in some way in, in, in self-help literature, but it, it, it seemed kind of like, you know, I don't know, background noise in some way. Like maybe your description in India, I've seen it in a bookstore and thinking, mm -hmm. meh. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never thought about it in detail. Um, but in the, seri in, the, in the course of trying to answer some questions about how Butler thought about her own labor, because she did all these part-time jobs for a long time, and so her labor for money in order to kind of keep herself going and to fund her own writing practice and then her writing practice as labor, I started to need to find out what she was actually reading or in this case listening to because she listened to books on tape quite often. And so I started kind of digging through the journals and, and pulling out references to specific texts that I could tell that she's engaged. And then I went out and procured them and started reading them and what I found was a really not something that I expected in terms of what kinds of texts she was reading so she was reading um, people like Napoleon Hill the author of Think and Grow Rich or um, she was listening to Brian Tracy a more contemporary self-help um, kind of uh, speaker a motivational speaker um, and in the process of, of reading these, they, they seem to kind of share a set of characteristics that they, they're often written by men, they're often written by white men, they're kind of entrepreneurial, they're very entrepreneurial. Um, and I thought this was really strange. Um, so that's where my curiosity came from and why I started reading people like Napoleon Hill and kind of unpacking some of this really a 20th century history of American self-help linked to a kind of entrepreneurial ethos. Yeah, and, and listening to that, the, the talk that you gave that Hannah, Hannah mentioned earlier, while I was listening to that, a lot of it chimed with me from memories of India mm -hmm. and memories of bookshops, particularly in India, which mm -hmm. uh, in my childhood and today, and, and much more today, uh, uh, in fact, uh, self-help sections of the bookshops are huge the self-help globally the self-help book industry seems to be 
insanely huge and, and yeah. growing. Um, and I wanted to figure out what was the connection between the story of self-help and capitalism in America and the story of self, self-help and capitalism in India and what the connections were because certainly in India I mean I, I can't off the top of my head say that I recognized the specific books you were describing from Indian bookshops but certainly you know how to win friends and influence people mm-hmm. would be a, an, an obvious one that that is certainly very easily available in Indian bookshops and and many others of that genre both quote-unquote western ones that have been imported and indigenous ones written by Indian authors yeah she definitely read Dale yeah. Carnegie um, and actually considered attending one of the speaking courses yeah. um, at some point and then decided she couldn't afford it um, at that time but but yeah, I mean, it is the kind of stuff that once you once you start to look at it, you, you, you realize that you've been looking at it for a long time and you just haven't actually recognized any of the details of it. And anytime I talk about um, any of these things, like Carnegie, um, another one is Norman Vincent Peale, who is responsible in part, is partially responsible for the words in God we trust on U- U.S. currency. Um, also wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, and that's one that a lot of people will recognize and say, oh, I just never really thought about that person. Um, you know, but certainly I've heard that title, or you know, that's something that someone recommended that I read. Um, and a lot of these texts are floating around, and maybe we'll come to this in the next episode more, but, but are texts that are circulated around people who are involved in kind of multi-level marketing mm-hmm. schemes, mm-hmm. Um, where it would be suggested that in order to grow their business, they read The Power of Positive Thinking or How to Win Friends and Influence People or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And they're also floating around in the circles of kind of um, not what I would call individualized self-help programs where it's kind of, you know, self-driven, but those kind of courses that you go to, like excellence courses or leadership courses or, you know, they all have Mm -hmm. these really kind of abstract and some would say empty names. Um, but those those kind of you know um, training courses and becoming a better whatever yeah in success your training success training yeah. yeah they also have proximity to to other powerful people mm-hmm. so of course they are many of them are quite successful capitalists but the the self help aspect of it brings them into close proximity with politicians mm-hmm. or celebrities or so they're often kind of quietly around even though you wouldn't necessarily associate some of these people they had access to presidents or they had access to or they were claiming to have access to (laughs) celebrities as the case may be (laughs) and so that proximity to wealth and fame and power but while being a little bit as you say you see the book you've heard of the title but you don't necessarily know that that individual actually was working in in these circles makes Mm -hmm. this specific kind of industry really fascinating mm-hmm. and kind of scary yeah if you are of a certain political persuasion yeah so i mean so several things <laughs> following on from that and one is that you know there's a difference between those who were in proximity of of people with wealth and power and those who claimed to be in proximity <laughs> right and it's not always clear 
you know, kind of um, how these stories break down because the stories themselves, uh, the, the kind of self-help literature, the strain of self-help literature itself depends so much on association with wealth and power. So Napoleon Hill, who was, as far as I could tell in his younger life, you know, kind of an unsuccessful salesperson who was at times accused of small, low-level fraud, um, allegedly, you know, um, but that the, the Think and Grow Rich and the eight-volume series that preceded it, um, The Laws of Success, w- claims over and over again to have benefited from direct contact with influential people um, and the claim he claims to have been put on this kind of path of discovering the laws of success by Andrew Carnegie himself um, and kind of claims this association with wealth and power and claims to have learned from Edison and from so on and so forth and sometimes you know the the mechanisms of these claims are through some kind of strange spiritual connection <laughs> <laughs> that he seems to believe in, um, and and sometimes they're quite literal, just fabrications. Um, he claims to have advised Woodrow Wilson and FDR, and it seems unlikely that the, those those relationships existed in the way that he describes them. Um, and then on the, on the other hand, you have cases where where these authors are very clearly involved in in kind of political machinations. One would be the Eisenhower administration and um, Norman Vincent Peale um, and his involvement with a colleague and kind of actively campaigning mm-hmm. to get, you know, prayer in schools or to add in God we trust to U.S. currency or um, the, the phrase one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance um, with the Eisenhower administration or you have, you know, certain, certain of these figures were donors um, to Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan or, you know, and were and major donors, um, and so we're involved in politics in that in, in these kind of direct ways. Um, so you have kind of both sides the 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 long tradition of being associated with wealth and fame as a rhetorical tradition, and then the actual association of <laughs> um, many of these authors with American politics, and specifically in these cases, often with with conservative politics in the United States. And, and that feeds into uh, the, the, uh, the believability of, of the book, right? In mm-hmm. other words, it is, it is the, the ability to accurately or not depict a sense of closeness with people in, in positions of power mm-hmm. that allows them to convince their readers that they have made it and, absolutely and if you follow these rules then you can make it as well absolutely and i mean interestingly they have they have made it right mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know yeah. they have just made it by selling the very thing that <laughs> yeah tells you you can make yeah. it by right yeah. um i was just thinking of something which i i it hadn't occurred to me until just this moment as you were describing octavia butler using um books on tape particularly mm-hmm. um have you seen the film the founder with Michael Keaton, no. so he plays um, he plays someone called Ray Kroc, who is who was responsible pretty much for for McDonald's. And 
he's the film depicts this man as a very very unsuccessful traveling salesman who's going around trying to sell um milkshake makers to independent diners burger bars whatever and he is he's unsuccessful he, he, it, there's a a really sort of tragic montage of him going from you know small town america to small town america finding diner after diner after diner trying to convince them to buy this milkshake machines and no one wants it until he hears of this particular diner which orders i don't know can't remember like eight or something uh and he goes and discovers that they are McDonald's and, and that's and he he ends up taking over the franchise and um so so anyway all of that happens but the thing that reminded me of it was in this sort of rather tragic montage during the day he's he's going he's going around from one one diner to another and at night he's staying in one anonymous motel after another listening to how to be a better salesman mm-hmm. on books on tape yeah and in that film it's presented as a sort of quintessentially 50s thing yeah i think and i was wondering if in terms of period where when is butler listening to this stuff but yeah. she's listening she starts listening to the, these in 1970 yeah but she's listen but the text that she's listening to in lots of cases are older yeah so um think and grow rich is 37 yeah. uh the power of positive thinking is what 56 i think so we can put that in the notes yeah. maybe yeah. um so is there a sort of particular post-war capitalism is is there something immediately post-war about the explosion of of self-help literature. Self-help literature. I mean, so the connection with with books like Think and Grow Rich or How to Win Friends, um, part of their success seems to come out of the depression. Actually, yeah. Yeah. that they offered people a way to think about, kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps yeah. at a time when yeah. all people had. Yeah. <laughs> We're bootstraps, um, and so they feed into this kind of like, and then and then you have the kind of New Deal era, and then I think there's another resurgence of this mm-hmm. literature, mm-hmm. yes, in the fifties, yeah, and you see it too. Um, the other kind of strand of this is the proliferation of specifically audio texts, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. where you could have these texts circulated, not not in in print or in print and in audio and there are a couple of companies in particular that start doing that in the post-war moment and it depends but it depends on a kind of technological Mm. you know development that you have to have um you have to have portable audio players and what they do even better like what what makes what what really helps the that particular strand of the industry take off is people commuting in cars Mm -hmm. so once you have players that can go in cars yeah. and people are driving to work mm-hmm. there's this one particular company I listen to this fascinating interview where they talk about actually taking and people putting record players yeah. in their automobiles yeah. so that they could listen mm. to motivational tapes or records mm. excuse me um, motivational records on their commute and this became the entire business model of this company, which is still, as far as I can tell, in business yeah. as a small family, as yeah. a family-owned company yeah. today. Um, yeah, the audio. Well, the audio format's really fascinating 
the TV show, it was on Hulu in the United States, but it's on Amazon Prime here. Yes, it's called The Path. And in it, so it's about an aspiring cult leader. Mm. So it's a, a young man who's who's been a member of this cult for a long time. They call it a, you know, it's a, it's a commune and a, a kind of just a, a network of people, right, the way that, that cults describe themselves. And the, the founder and leader of the cult is absent. Mm. And in that absence, his kind of protege slash heir is trying to develop the authority in order to become the next kind of leader of this cult in order to attain like power to himself. And in one of the very early scenes in one of the first episodes of the show, it's Hugh Dancy sitting in his car practicing leadership techniques listening to a CD and so he's and it, it's it's about and essentially because he's quite he's quite socially awkward and has a lot of difficulty mm. communicating emotions with the other members of the mm. cult so he's mm. he's quite isolated emotionally and they sort of hint at something like an autism spectrum disorder mm. or some mm. something that means that he's training himself to show emotion on his face that can be read by and it's and he's he's practicing the lines yeah. on according to this tape, and so it's a, and Americans recognize this. They, you know, you automatically sort of recognize the mm-hmm. the the audio format because if you grow up in a in an evangelical church, people pass around CDs of, of pastors, famous mm-hmm. pastors, mm-hmm. with a series of, of talks, like yeah. s- seminars or sermons or kind of series on CD, yeah. and you get they get passed around as as their educational. They're motivational, but they're spiritual guides in a sense. Spiritual guidance, absolutely. And it's this this amalgam of like advice for living your life, living a good life, but also mm-hmm. advice for living a creating a sort of spiritual self. And there's a lot of the rhetoric does say there there are rewards in this life. Yeah. And those rewards are material in some way whether that's power or whether it's success in a career aspect or whether whatever it is and it's i mean i had those cds growing up like i remember being lent those cds by pastors and youth leaders and stuff and that that kind of practice in a sort of like television show depicting a cult that's quite quite a scary cult i was like oh I'm having a, a very strong memory of the big plastic case holding cassette tapes. Mm. You would have like eight or six of them in a big <laughs> plastic. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So there's a. It, there's a. It's not just an industry, but it's also the format itself, the charismatic voice, mm-hmm. the the calming but kind of provocative and inspiring voice yeah. of a, a a trusted authority figure who's trained in you know, rhetoric and mm-hmm. oration and, and giving seminars. That's definitely, I think, a part of the power of self-help. I know these people, right? We're talking, we were talking about EST before. Yeah. It's not just a book. It's also the, the talk. You go listen to the... You go to the event. Yeah, a motivational speaker is something you kind of, you know... Well, I mean, think of TED Talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that there's, there's a kind of... And some of these, some contemporary people do TED Talks, um, who are in, in, in motivational speaking, but the part of the experience, um, 
is coming into contact with the aura, <laughs> so in some sense of the okay. the actual the speaker um, in these, and some of these tapes, and I, I I started out listening to them on tape because I wanted to get the sense of the of the format that Octavia Butler was consuming, and at first I found it off putting, right. right? Because it's kind of past. It does sound sort of. There's a kind of cadence that I recognize um, as as associated with with a kind of religious uh, meeting or or session or something. But the more I listened to them, the more that became familiar and comfortable, and I could actually start to kind of analyze what I was hearing, um, which I thought was you know sort of interesting just as a phenomenon <laughs> that I experienced, my mm-hmm. first response was so kind of reflexively just, no, 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 no. And then once once you kind of, you're lulled by the kind of way of speaking <laughs> of some of these people, and some of it's, initially I found quite abrasive, mm-hmm. actually, and that the more you listen, the more you come to expect a certain kind of turn of voice. And I thought that was kind of interesting. But... But yeah, I mean, she. It's it's interesting too to go back to what you say about the path, which is something I haven't seen and that I'm going to have to go consume later on. But I mean, Butler herself was very worried about appearing publicly. She was a very shy person, um, and she considered herself to stand out, which she did in lots of ways, um, particularly as a black woman writing in science fiction, like in science fiction circles in the 70s, 80s, um, where she's, you know, not (laughs) one of very few women and one of one black woman doing successfully what she was doing at that time, um, really in a field dominated by by white men. Um, So she did stand out, but she, aside from that, she was just personally very shy. So so there are kind of lots of moments in her journals and in her kind of self, her, her writing to herself, journals, commonplace books, and so on, where she is thinking about public speaking specifically. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that, that really struck me because as I was working through the documents around the parable series, so Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, two, mm-hmm. of, two of her later novels, um, I realized that I may have, in the first pass, confused reading that she was doing for herself with research that she was doing for the series, because the series depends on this kind of strong young woman becoming a leader and the founder of a religion that then has to, Mm -hmm. she has to gain adherence and she has to like, you know, kind of, um, she wants to grow her religion. Um, Earth Seed is the religion, and um, the destiny of Earth Seed is to take root in this, uh, amongst the stars. And so, I had just assumed that a certain set of texts were related to kind of success, were research that she was doing on how people talk about leaders, mm-hmm. and that it was research for the novel. And when I went back through again, I was like, okay, actually, I think these things are probably research for the novel on leadership, right? Because there's kind of Lauren Olamina is the good leader, mm-hmm. and then there's also the bad leader, who's a mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> kind of manga figure, mm-hmm. <laughs> L- literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, 
but there are other things that she's encountering there that I think she was actually consuming on her own time, and I had kind of missed the relationship between these two things because I'd made assumption that this kind of literature wouldn't be meaningful mm-hmm. in a kind of personal sense. Do you think she ever saw that the connection between the two? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it comes across pretty clearly in the end of the second novel mm. in particular. And there's supposed to be a trilogy and she never the third one she never finished. Um but yeah, I do. I, I think there there there's a kind of reflection on the strange relationship between these these two kinds of leaders, mm. um, one of whom is supposed to be seen as a progressive leader and the other is is literally a neo-fascist mm. and and I do think she's aware of this kind of uneasy um, similarity between the two and I won't talk too much about the novel because that's not what mm. <laughs> it's not just to talk about mm. the novel but but yeah I do think she was aware of it and I'm not sure she she solved it in any way she but she's kind of playing with the invert some 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 kind of inversion here mm. um, between a kind of, because um, Earthseed is kind of modeled on, on, mm. on self-help literature in some ways, and this kind of like do-it-yourself bootstraps that mm. can be brought to a kind of progressive good and one that gets turned fascist or a similar, mm. a similar ideology turned to fascistic purposes, maybe. How does the self-help then manifest in her life? as well that's an interesting question so because in, in in 1970 or so she starts writing these kind of a formula to herself where she sets out her goals and she writes morning and and, and night um for a time twice a day she'll write you know the date and then a.m and then the date and then p.m and she'll kind of write this mantra where she sets out her her plans and her goals and the timeline in which she will achieve them, which is something that comes directly from from um, some of the self-help literature. And she keeps doing that indefinitely. Um, so if you look even at the kind of exhibition stuff from the archives or, you know, these these documents are striking. Um, she writes this, I will be, I, I will be, I will be a best-selling author, and she writes out a list of things, how she's going to achieve bestsellerdom, she called it, and what she'll do with her money. And by the 80s, she's writing this all the time, consistently. Um, and they're really striking documents, so she kept it up, as far as I can tell, for you know decades, starting in 1970 and going through to the end of her life, that she incorporated this kind of motivational... Um, writing and auto-suggestion into her own kind of writing practice. Um, it was kind of, yeah, they're fascinating documents. Yeah, well, I mean, she, she was successful. Mm-hmm, she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did it. And, and you know, her goals were, in the first instance, she was going to uh, make sure that her mom was secure, which she did. Um, the first thing she did when she made enough money on her fiction was to pay off her mom's mortgage. Um, when she won MacArthur, she bought herself a house. Right? These, these are these are some of the goals. She she did set out kind of very ambitious goals. She was going to make ten million dollars at one point, and the MacArthur wasn't quite that big, <laughs> but but it did allow her to live comfortably and to purchase 
and to purchase property and to support her family. And you know, one of the other things she said she wanted to do in these in these documents that she wrote compulsively every day is she said she was going to found a scholarship for for disadvantaged youth and specifically for um, African American children in Los Angeles, which now has been done in her name, which I just think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's excellent. So it's we've we've sort of been uh, not quite skirting around but I guess one of the things at the, at the heart of what interests me specifically about about the genre of self-help is that it seems to connect both um, sort of connect three uh, three different facets of our society mm-hmm. um, the the socioeconomic system, capitalism to, 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 to use that label, the the political system in terms of you mentioned before the connections between uh, the ways in which certain self help uh, books use precedents or, or Supreme Court justices as endorsements. Mm-hmm. Um, we of course now have a U.S. president who has written self help books. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> The Art of the Deal is clearly a self-help book in this in this, <laughs> in, in this uh, universe. Yes, it is. Um, and religion, right? Yeah. So, so uh, there is a kind of Protestant work ethic, American dream thing going on here. About it is, it is sort of your duty to improve yourself yeah. as much as possible. And if you follow your duty, then you will get the rewards, uh, both in this life in terms of material benefits and in the next world as, as, a, as a good Christian subject. And all of these things parallel uh, it, it, uh, uh, parallel the, the, the way self, self-help books manifest themselves in India. So you, mm-hmm. have, you have particular forms of quote-unquote Hindu spirituality, you know, in terms of uh, yoga, for example, or as you know, Hindu astrology, uh, as part of the the self help um, world, where you are, you know, your the tools that will allow you to be a successful entrepreneur could include anything from a, a sort of Dale Carnegie style networking through to to, to yoga and meditation, mm-hmm. and all of that is in order is is employed in order to help yourself finish the, the job as it were in terms of you know developing you to your to your fullest yeah and I find this fascinating because you know coming from an American studies yeah. perspective my go-to is like the kind of Protestant work ethic yeah. and clearly the kind of entrepreneurial element of, of the, some of the self-help literature is tied to a kind of religious element mm-hmm. via the Protestant work mm-hmm. ethic. And this suggests actually that, like what, what you're saying about about the way that religious um, elements fit in, in Indian self-help culture, mm-hmm. um, suggests that there's something else at work here mm-hmm. and suggests that we can't just make that equation between kind of a Protestant work ethic and self-help and American kind of liberalism or neoliberalism mm-hmm. as whichever the case may be. Um, so that kind of complicates the picture of, of what otherwise is a fairly tidy equation. Mm-hmm. Um, it really complicates it for me in some ways that I think, Henny, you had some interesting commentary mm-hmm. on it. Uh, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the coming from a South Asian background, like South Asian studies background, but growing up in a very American and kind of an odd American. I've talked before on the podcast about how um, I was growing up, I was in, in proximity to evangelical Christianity, but also to New Age spirituality in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And they, it was that sort of weird combination of fundamentalist Christianity and and hardcore new age spirituality mm-hmm. people with a ton of resources and the kind of environment the the green you know protected mm-hmm. environment of the west coast of, of the united states to mm-hmm. to do all of this and that kind of sort of spiritual and like religiosity of my upbringing then mm-hmm. moving into south asian studies kind of intellectual endeavor at, in college at or university mm-hmm. meant that some of the 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 reading of Hindu texts in particular, because you spend a lot of time, liberal arts degree, reading texts. Sometimes it's literature, but sometimes it's, you know, religious texts or philosophical texts or whatever. It's just, it's reading books all the time. (laughs) And a lot of those books that I read were, you know, excerpts from Vedic texts. Um, They'd been translated from Sanskrit. Mm. And some Mahabharata, the Gita, um, and thinking about specifically, right, they pull out the, the stuff that's of interest to, you know, like white wealthy mm. American kids at a private liberal arts college, right? The Varna system, mm. the, or, you know, now kind of b- roughly associated with the caste system mm. um, and the, the Gita as a sort of... Um, commentary on duty even if your duty is is one of violence um and associated with warfare um and there is something very self-helpy like you can see the connection between american new age spiritualism and some of these hindu texts and the the varna system in particular sets out this kind of this system of kind of hierarchical relationships Mm. that are based in like cosmology in kind of economic practice and in kind of biological and physiological self so mm. your your body itself is a, a holder a container of and is inherently characterized by your position your social mm-hmm. position that is also cosmological and that predates christianity mm. and it predates mm. certainly predates capitalism and it predates empire and one of the things that we didn't want to do was to say that it, kind of a, a contemporary uh, self-help culture in India is rooted in empire. Um, certainly not just mm-hmm. in empire. Yeah, exactly. We didn't want it, want to say this is purely kind of colonialism yeah. um, because we don't think that that's accurate. Yeah. Um, and we also, you know, there's, there's aspects of the yeah. world that aren't just colonially... I, I wonder if the connection here is ritual hmm. because the so the you, you reference the Gita mm-hmm. the in in perhaps the most prominent message of the Gita is do your job do your duty your du- your duty is to do your job not to worry about the results and if you do what you are if you do your duty then then results will follow and that is very self-helpy in a kind of ritual mm-hmm. way. You know, the way you, you were describing Octavia Butler ritualistically writing morning and evening, this is what she's going to do. 
and and from what I remember from from the talk, it's it's almost as if the the ritual of writing it out is going to be part of what gets it. That's absolutely that's absolutely the case. And yeah. it's coming directly out of these texts. Yeah. Um, and I won't read <laughs> I won't read passages at your <laughs> listeners um, because I know how boring that can be. But but the sense of in in Napoleon Hill in particular of habit force, <laughs> and it's tied in with a set of beliefs that have roots in a kind of new thought, an American new thought, um, which goes back to transcendentalism and. Um, the whole set of thinkers following on from that um, and leads to all kinds of strange places too. Um, but but the new thought as a as a particular kind of movement in American American thinking that um, yeah holds that not not only that the kind of repetition of activity mm-hmm. can make something so, but also that the kind of focus of mind energy mm-hmm. has some kind of material force in the world, um, and that. As such, it can it can kind of make things happen for you. So so the power of auto suggestion here is that if you mm-hmm. if you kind of repeat something enough, mm-hmm. it will become true. Mm-hmm. And and not only did Butler practice this in her writing, but but she writes kind of about it. Mm-hmm. You know that that characters and not just in the parable series, where um, Olamina, the leader in that in that in that series, like kind of invents this religion as a mm-hmm. as a as a response to apocalypse, right? Mm. Um, America fails, and um, she has to figure out a way to get through it and to help other people to get through this post-apocalyptic landscape. But in earlier books, where characters will have, you know, kind of, um, is it telekinetic powers, mm-hmm. right? Um, in Pat- the Pattern Master series, mm-hmm. there are characters with, with kind of mm. all kinds of mental powers. Um, or in Xenogenesis, where you know the Onkali in that in that series can can literally control their physical bodies by kind of understanding them. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you see it not just manifested in her own writing practice, but also in the kind of contents of the novels over the course mm-hmm. of her career in some really fascinating ways. That there's this idea that that kind of the mind can actually control the world around you and that repetition and telling yourself what you want to be true will make it so in some ways. It's a fascinating sort of uncritical mirror of sort of Foucault and Judith Butler in a sense. You know, there's a <laughs> there's a there's a kind of performativity mm-hmm. aspect to this. And Foucault's sort of you know the the way in which the sort of ritual allows allows the disciplining of the body. Mm-hmm. It's 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 sort of you. It's it's almost like they've taken they've taken Foucault and Butler and taken out the criticism and 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 the science and the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, like evidence <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean it, it. It also appeals too on this kind of very you know when you put it in terms of kind of performativity, it mm. appeals in this very kind of like layperson's way or yeah. you can fake it till you make it yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. what have you I mean there's something that seems really intuitive about it mm-hmm. and yeah. that these texts in particular and specifically when we get into the ones that kind of um, set up a kind of pseudo-scientific apparatus for something mm. like habit force yeah. <laughs> as a kind of natural force in yeah. the world like gravity um, that literally um, that's yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. that that 
that actually it's a kind of it's a kind of you know putting a kind of the rhetoric of science and the rhetoric of kind of empiricism on mm-hmm. what is a very intuitive way of thinking about activity in the world mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is like you want to be this thing yeah well go try to do it until you are or aren't that yeah. thing that you want yeah. to be um, so is our problem with it that it is exploitative is I mean is that the what because you know we said Octavia Butler made it right she she followed these rules and she also wrote the books yeah like yeah she also did yeah she d- and obviously we we don't really work in counterfactuals yeah. because we just tend yeah. not to yeah. uh, but we have no other way of knowing that her her maybe she had a sort of laser focus that was facilitated by mm-hmm. the kind of writing of intentions and goal setting yeah. but we all you know and there's there's but what's it there's a question of what's exploitative about it so one anecdote that you told before we started recording was how she would even in times where she was extremely uh, poor when mm-hmm. she had very few resources and she was working really hard she would she would still spend money on some of her subscriptions to some of these sources and organizations that it is that and and to to for us to say that that's exploitative of the the company itself or the purveyors of the information you know do we really have the yeah i mean to be to be fair she also was a a kind of lifelong supporter of her public library yeah um, public libraries um, both in pasadena and in los angeles um and so so it's it's not like she was just kind of buying books. Yeah, and like yeah, starving. The way that graduate students are like, oh, I'm starving, but I've got yeah. to get you know yeah. these <laughs> seventeen, uh, you know, a volume set of whatever. Um, but this terrible. was a priority for her. But I do, I do think it was a priority for her, and I think that it's it's something that she practiced as a way to kind of give herself time out because she did work hard. She yeah. worked really hard, yeah. and if there there is, I do find fairly clear evidence that she never gave up her subscriptions to her kind of her science fiction um you know kind of outlets and that she Mm. was constantly engaged in that world and reading you know she read voraciously Mm. Uh, she read voraciously from the library and in kind of all kinds certainly in her in her specific area um in sci-fi um but i do i do think she I do think she kind of committed to this and that it was something that she committed to do as in, in part as a kind of um, way of coming down, mm-hmm. way of taking a break. She, she did work hard. She did not sleep a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would write in her journals. You know, she also produced writing, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of writing. Um, she's constantly making notes about things, constantly annotating everything that she saw and she encountered. Um, she'd take a walk, she'd take a notebook with her and write down what she saw along her walk, like what Folia just doing what at what time in, in Pasadena. And, um, so she, I think this for her was a way to take a break and shut yeah. down. Yeah. And she would say to herself, like, I promise to take a total session, yeah. which I think is a yeah. reference to mm. a kind of 
hypnotic or yeah. auto-hypnotic or auto-suggestive session or a self-help session of some sort. Um, and I yeah. do find concrete evidence that at least in the 90s that she's kind of got these subscriptions going mm-hmm. to audiobook clubs where it seems like I mean she's certainly coming by at some point in the 70s yeah. because it's in her notes yeah. that early and, and of course I mean there's this might be stating the obvious but there's a kind of survivor bias at work here right that mm-hmm. we are you are looking at this because she made it. Exactly. If she hadn't made it, then you wouldn't know who she was. You wouldn't be looking at it. And, exactly. And for everyone who makes it, not unlike the American dream, there are thousands and thousands and millions who don't make it. Yeah. And and the industry, the economics of the that that underpins the industry, is based on on the fact that most of the people won't make it. Yeah. Um, and that turns into the, the kind of conversation about capital, broadly yes. speaking, and also about the specific kinds of marketing schemes yes. that are so closely allied to, that we'll talk about in the next, in the episode. next episode, but that are so closely allied to this industry. And, you know, which I'll, I'll say Butler mm-hmm. also had some little mm-hmm. engagement, a little bit of engagement mm-hmm. with, um, mm-hmm. interestingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she... she tried direct marketing for a time and so on and so forth. But but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's exactly that you say there's a kind of survivor's bias that, that you don't, you know, by definition, the, the stories that you hear of success and okay. business and yeah. industry are people who make yeah. it. Yeah. So of course we ally ourselves in the stories yeah. that we tell with Andrew Carnegie. Of course we ally ourselves uh, with you know these these uh, Edison <laughs> or yeah. um, Ford, yeah. Um, yeah, and and there is a way in which those narratives erase the vast numbers of the rest of us um, who haven't yeah. haven't succeeded. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, and they, they target the individual. Mm-hmm. The whole story is designed to be about the individual. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's one of the reasons they're so effective. And you, you used the word intuitive, because it, and I think that's a really good word to describe it, because they, they create a story that places the individual at the heart of it as both the kind of the agent, but also the subject of study and, mm-hmm. of, and of change. And... At the end of, of a process, and it is a sort of process of growth and development and um, learning and education and trial and suffering and then coming out at the other end stronger mm. and better and faster if you're an X-Men, <laughs> the, the individual is the hero of the story. Yeah. And your kind of future more perfect self, more realized, and that, that's a sort of new agey word, you know, a fully realized mm. self is the kind of outcome, and you set your sights on that. And for Butler, it was a really, in some ways, it was a, it was very clear, her, her goal was to become a best-selling writer. Yeah. That's a quite a tangible thing with a series of kind of activities that you can do to become a, a writer. And mm. in... in Compared to some of the some of the the ways that people try and develop themselves, I'm mm-hmm. going to, um, for example, develop you know semi superpowers. 
develop my sort of intuitive connection with others and I'm going to be able to read minds or I'm going mm-hmm. to develop like that there are people who yes. try and develop themselves in the in yeah. that way um, or I'm going to become you know the president of the United States or I'm going to become the CEO of a massive corporation or I'm going to uh, be raptured into heaven right you know there's all sorts I'm of going to become a permanent full-time lecturer and oh wait no. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the part of the way in which capitalism continues to generate uh, its its own survival is through that sort of promise that is always deferred right that, that yes. it will happen you you it you will you will make it as long as you keep at it and yeah and it's you and it's you it's you alone yeah. as the and Foucault talks it calls hmm. this homo economicus the, yeah. the kind mm-hmm. of individual economic agent and by doing that it shifts attention away or it, it hides like it creates a veil mm. over the system mm. the, the kind yeah. of structure and that was of course Marx's project mm. was to lift that veil mm. yeah I think this is really interesting that, that, that what you're pointing out is that it's a narrative structure mm-hmm. mm. here that this is a kind of storytelling yeah. and it is the privileging of you know, a certain kind of narrative, which yeah. is a plot yeah. with a protagonist yeah. who will succeed at whatever betterness we send mm-hmm. to that person. And as I told you guys about my my darling son figuring out that he could write stories until he died, um, <laughs> that you can keep rewriting that story, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, indefinitely, yeah. right? And that's part of the reason that one one... One might say this is part of the reason why the accumulation of wealth is never enough in and of yeah. itself, right? Yeah. And that the accumulation of wealth always begets the accumulation mm-hmm. of more wealth yeah. and then more wealth. And that, that, that here is a different kind of narrative mm-hmm. to the critical structural narrative mm-hmm. that we see mm-hmm. in Marx yeah. or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and of course the, the coerciveness of it, it comes in because the corollary is if you don't make it, you haven't you haven't put enough. You haven't yeah. tried enough. You haven't enough. tried hard enough. Yeah. Because if if trying hard enough on its own guarantees success, then you don't have anyone else to blame. Guarantees eventual future success yeah. if you continue to try exactly hard enough. Yes. Who knows what enough is? Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but, but again, we come back to this like question about intuition, and mm-hmm. I brought up academia, so I will speak of academia. But it, it is that sense where it's really hard from inside something if you haven't got the thing you want, yeah. right? If I haven't yet got the thing I want, then it's very hard for me not to see it as somehow in my control, yeah. right? And we see this in all kinds of abusive yeah. relationships yes, yes. where the person who is actually the victim of whatever abuse has real trouble admitting that it's yeah. not somehow their fault, yeah. right? And there's a kind of, let's not call them totally, they're not identical, but there's the kind of parallel structure here mm. where um, it is in some way easier to accept that I haven't done something to attain the thing I want rather than to consider that there might be a system at work here which mm. is designed to keep me from the thing I want because that's not how it's built because it's built on a wide base and a small top Mm -hmm. and i think you know it's 
it's a lot easier just as a psychological agent to imagine, no, no, I, there's something I can do about it mm-hmm. if I just work hard enough. Mm. I will, you know, attain a full-time, you know, permanent position mm. with a mediocre salary and increasingly fewer benefits, but what have you. <laughs> um, what are you going to do? Is that a good note to end on? Well, it's not, but... It's not, but we'll we'll pick up some of these, the, the relationship between the structure and the individual in the next episode, and then mm. also the wider industry and the... Yes, because we are moving right into the incentives that that create the kind of relationship between these two elements, the kind of self-help as a kind of um, kind of personal utopian project, and the in India, I think you call it like capitalist utopianism mm. of um, some of these other uh, and what it tells schemes. us about capitalism itself, and what it tells us about capitalism itself. Yeah, good. More well, on capitalism next week. Uh, we don't talk enough about capitalism. <laughs> um, thanks a lot for listening. And we will catch you on the other side. Bye. 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 <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.